Last Sunday, I shared a message from Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I wanted to start off today by sharing those, those verses again. But in Matthew's gospel, chapter 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now I want you to think about those words and what Jesus said, the truth that he is revealing in in those two verses. I want you to consider these statistics. Uh, 80% of the people in our community, probably more than that, identify as Christian. They believe they are on the narrow path leading to life. Um, a Gallup poll and also a Pew Research, 69% of all Americans identify as Christian. 69% of Americans believe they are on the narrow path leading to life. Just a few verses down uh, from, from the opening verses, Jesus says this, just a couple sentences in the same message, same sermon. Uh, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, look at that, many. Many will say to me that a Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, the fact of the matter is, most people in this world are going to stand before the great white throne. And many will believe that, they were, that as they stand before that throne, many of them will have believed they were on the right path, only to discover that they were not on the right path. And they'll hear these words, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now how can there be so much discrepancy between those statistics and what Jesus spoke here in Matthew chapter 7? Why are there so many people that identify as Christians, but yet so many are not going to be saved? And there's really two possibilities. I mentioned these last week. Number one, first of all, they were never on the path to begin with. They were never on the narrow path. And then number two is this, they were on the narrow path, but they strayed away from the narrow path. So many, for many who knew the narrow path, it became difficult for them, and they began to look for an alternative path, and they found that in convenient Christianity. But Jesus said there is only one path, and he was very clear about this. That one path is narrow, and it is difficult. Some of you may think, well, maybe those statistics are a bit inflated. Personally, I don't believe they are. I think they're pretty accurate. I believe that a majority of the people living in our community and in our nation believe, genuinely believe, that they are on the right path, that they are heading down the narrow path leading to life. So what would cause this discrepancy? I mean, here's the truth of God's word. We're not going to deny what Jesus said. We believe, obviously, what he said. No matter what the statistics say, we're going to look at his word as truth. So why do these people, why do so many people believe they are on the narrow path? So why is there such a discrepancy? And I would turn to this fact that Satan is a master of deception. I mean, he is so good at deceiving. Just think about this for a moment. A third of the heavenly hosts were able to be deceived. Now, who are we to think that we can't be deceived? If a third of the heavenly hosts were deceived and carried away and followed a rebellion with this, this being. Imagine this. There were two people in the Garden of Eden without sin, perfect, never knew sin, living in a perfect, sinless environment, and yet these two people...
people were deceived. Now, if this, if this can happen in these situations, who are we to think that we can't be deceived? Satan is capable of deceiving people to believe there is an easier path. And the, the Christian life, again, we shouldn't be gluttons for punishment. We don't have to make it more difficult than it is. But if you truly want to live godly, if you want to live for Jesus, you're going to find that the narrow path is difficult. Paul the Apostle warns us about this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit says expressly in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. And look at this. Giving heed, some will depart from the faith. Christians will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. You say, how is that possible? Continues on speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So some Christians will depart from the faith because they will have entertained deceiving spirits and believe doctrines inspired by the devil. The person standing behind the pulpit or teaching in a class, they are the person that is the most effective tool for Satan. The person, I'm going to say that again. I'm not saying it's me. I'm just saying the person standing behind the pulpit or teaching a class is the perfect vehicle, the best, the most effective tool that Satan can use to bring deception. And remember, the target of deception isn't the lost. They're already deceived. They're already lost. The target of deception is believers. So they're believers. So the person that can be the most effective at bringing deception is the person who is teaching or leading the Word of God. The person teaching God's Word isn't on the narrow path. They are a perfect vehicle, a perfect target for Satan to deceive and use to bring deception. If the person teaching God's Word goes through a time of difficulty, and we all know that's possible, but yet they begin to question their faith. They begin to question the path they're on. Maybe what I'm teaching or preaching isn't true. What if everything I've believed, everything I've been taught, maybe it's it's not a good thing. That person, again, could be a prime target for deception, a perfect delivery system. So let me ask you this. Who's more effective at deceiving people? Imagine this. A person behind the pulpit in a church teaching. A person in a Sunday school class teaching. Or some guy on the side of the road with a megaphone saying, turn or burn. It's obvious, isn't it? Who's going to have the most effective a path to uh, deceive people. It's right here in the church. And I would say this with great caution to some of you. Now, some of these social media prophets and these YouTube preachers that you like to listen to, you better be careful what you listen to. Because I've heard some people mention, well, this person, and, and you know, it's nothing but garbage most of the time. If, if anyone is, minist is ministering just mysteries rather than truth, you better watch what you're listening to. You know, there, there is plenty of you know, there are people that like to take interesting, minute details and make a big deal about it and don't minister anything but mysteries and cause confusion. You should run from that person as fast as you can. 2 Timothy 4, chapter, or verse 3, For the time will come when they, being us, will not endure sound doctrine, but according to our own desires, because we have itching ears, we will heap up for ourselves teachers, and those teachers, uh, will, they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul wrote these words warning the church of people from within the church who would not endure sound doctrine. And then sadly, this happens right here in our own community. So we have people who don't want to endure sound doctrine, and then we have people in the pulpit who will entertain that desire. 
If you don't want to, if you don't want to endure sound doctrine, you have an itch, then I can scratch it for you. So what do we do? We heap up for ourselves teachers. In most cases, the abandonment of sound doctrine is not profound. It's not profound. You know, if, if someone who was in a Trinitarian church, so we believe in, in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you begin to preach something different than the Trinity, the traditional uh, evangelical view of Christianity, uh, then you can, you can pretty much openly see that. But that's not the way Satan deceives. He takes the truth, and he just takes a little deviation away from the truth, and what he does is enough deviation that it still feels true, but boy, it really appeals to my flesh. It really appeals to what, I got a, an itch up here and it just really scratches it. So if you're the devil and you wanted to deceive as many people as possible, what doctrine would you manipulate? What doctrine would you target? If you were the devil and you wanted to deceive as many as people as possible in the body of Christ, which doctrine would you pervert the most? And the answer is very simple. You would manipulate the doctrine of salvation. It's easy, salvation. I mean, you get them right there in the beginning. I want you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must, be, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgress, transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? The writer of Hebrews, if we look at the previous chapter, it's a continuation of chapter 1 into chapter 2. He's talking about believers under the old covenant, how they would receive a just reward. Remember the old covenant given through Moses and confirmed by God through signs that they would be held responsible and received a just reward for their disobedience. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes to believers under a new covenant given to us through Christ, administered through Christ, that we will be held to a greater level of accountability. I know there are some people who like to take grace and say, grace, 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 it's free, and you can send all you want, and that is not the truth. Under grace, there is greater responsibility. The writer of Hebrews warns us not to neglect. See, not just to abandon, because I really believe it. For people to abandon the faith, they neglect the faith. So not to neglect so great a salvation. That word neglect from the original manuscripts is the Greek word amaleo. And it means simply to be careless. To be careless of your salvation. I mean, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And when we're careless, it means we're just, we're, when we neglect, we're careless. Uh, we may not pay proper attention to, we disregard, or we fail to do something. That's not that word neglect in the Greek means amaleo. And notice the warning is, is to not to neglect our salvation. And that's where we are deceived often. And this is where we are often led astray, because we begin to neglect so great a salvation. The best lie Satan has perpetrated in the modern-day presentation of the gospel is the elimination of certain spiritual components which are necessary for salvation. The church has reduced salvation down to a formula, a formula that is, that is void of a spiritual experience. And somehow new birth and the experience of new birth is considered something mental 
rather than something spiritual. Somehow we've, we've just taken that completely out, and I don't know why. Today, if a person believes who Jesus is, what he did, believing this is just sufficient for experience and salvation. And by the way, there are pr- plenty of scriptures to back this up. There are plenty of scriptures. Again, remember, the key to neglecting salvation is this. You're going to take certain components of salvation. You're going to, to focus on them, but you're going to neglect certain other aspects of salvation, which should never be neglected. So believing, should you believe to be saved? Absolutely. Believing is a necessary component to experiencing salvation, but it's not the only component. Satan himself believes he can't be saved. Come on. So plenty of scriptures to back up this view. I'll just give you a few. Believing. Believing is just necessary for salvation, but it's, again, not the only necessity. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John three thirty six: He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 1 John 5, 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, may know that you are, have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Proponents of easy believism or hyper-grace would cite these scriptures as say, what else do we need to hear? I mean, the Bible speaks to us about this. Believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. But they are highlighting one component leading to salvation while ignoring others, and you cannot do that. Satan has used this tactic throughout the Bible, church. It's nothing new. It's a very effective tool. Satan used this against Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Going to take certain aspects of God's Word, going to heighten it, going to focus on it, we're going to deny this other part here. I mean, isn't this what Satan tried to do with Jesus in the wilderness? I mean, the, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Word of God made flesh, he tries to, if the fact that he, you say, well, Satan's just stupid. No, he's wise. If he could even try this on Jesus while in the flesh, don't you think that should get our attention? That he wouldn't do the same thing to us? He has a playbook. It's old. It's tried. It's true. He doesn't deviate from it. Here's why. Because it works. It works. Satan will take part of the Word of God, focus on this part of God, Word, word of God, but neglect another part. In church, that is where you find deception. You are easily deceived when you take one part of the word, focus on it, and ignore another part of it. Think about this question. How does a person come to Christ? How does a person come to Christ? How do they they come into relationship with Christ? What is the process of a sinner experiencing salvation? I heard a pastor once share this story, and I, I might have mentioned it in some other message, but um, he's driving down the road. As he's driving down the road, he hits a red light. He stopped there at the red light. Gentleman comes to his, his uh, uh, driver's side door, windows open, says, uh, hey, you want to buy some drugs? He goes, no, I don't, I don't do drugs anymore. And the uh, man's like, that's fine. So he walks away, and as the pastor's driving away, the light turns green, he's driving away. He's like, I need to go back and talk to that guy. This guy's lost. This guy needs Jesus. So he doubles back, pulls into a parking lot, walks over to the man where the man is and says, hey, do you mind if I have a word with you for a moment? Drug dealer says, sure. Pastor goes on to tell his story, his testimony of how he was a drug dealer once and how he had come to know 
this person who changed his life. And before he could say it, the drug dealer said, you mean Jesus? The pastor's like, yes. He goes, I already know him. I've said the sinner's prayer. I'm a Christian. I don't know the circumstances of this man's experience, but I can speculate. And this is what I can speculate. Someone shared Jesus with this man without repentance and without the work of the Holy Spirit. Believing that God sent Jesus into the world to die for sinners, a sinner's death as a sacrifice for our sins, that alone doesn't save anyone from their sins. The first presentation of the gospel after the resurrection of Jesus, the first altar call, so to speak, to happen after the resurrection of Jesus, the first altar call of the church is Acts chapter 2. Once the, the believers who are in the upper room wait for the promise of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they're instructed, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive this power. And then when you receive this power, you're going to be witnesses. So the disciples receive this promise on the day of Pentecost. They go out to the temple courts, and what do they begin to do? Believe on Jesus? Believe on Jesus? It's not what they do. It's really fascinating if we look at it. So they begin to go out witnessing. Because that's what they're empowered to do, to witness. And you know what? Every one of us in here, if you're born again, you're empowered to be a witness. Because that's your, your, your primary function when it comes to the mission of God, to make disciples of all nations, is to be a witness. Now, Peter, what he does is he stands up in the midst of the crowd. They're all testifying. So Peter tells the crowd about his experience and why the Holy Spirit had been poured out. And Peter concludes with these words. I don't know if you've ever caught these words, but boy, they, they, they hurt. Peter says this, Acts 2.36. Again, the Holy Spirit's been poured out. They've spoken in other tongues. They come out. They're witnessing to people that are there on the day of Pentecost. They're, there, they're celebrating the holiday and begin to testify. Peter begins to preach, and this is what he says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, ooh, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. And let everyone of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter looks at the crowd, and most of these people, remember, these are devout Jews. These are people that have made the pilgrimage for Pentecost. Most likely, and odds are, most of these people who were there for Pentecost were there for Passover. Passover is the most important religious uh, ceremony and, and celebration in Israel's religion. This Pentecost is another great one. So if these people are so devout to be at Pentecost, odds are they were most likely there during Passover. Peter says to them, Jesus, whom you crucified, is Lord in Christ. In response, they were cut to the heart. Now, what does that mean? It means they were convicted. And there is such an important word when it comes to salvation, conviction. So they felt wounded in their hearts. They felt guilt. They felt shame because they know what Peter is saying is correct. This man that was welcomed in on Palm Sunday... At, at Hosanna, Hosanna. And then at the end of the week, where they're shouting, crucify, crucify. 
This Jesus whom you crucified is Lord in Christ. And they are cut to the heart. And Peter, you've got you to admire him. He doesn't mix words. He's not being mean. He's not being nasty. But the, wounds that he, the words that he spoke wounded their hearts. And they feel shame. They feel conviction, church. And conviction is a wonderful, wonderful gift of God. Conviction is a work of God's grace. And this is where we mislead people. We try to be the Holy Spirit. And we try to save people. And you and I can't save anyone. The Holy Spirit doesn't need us to do his job. Because when we do his job, we do it poorly and we mislead people. We do our job. We're called to do this. We're called to give our personal testimony. Nobody knows you better than you. Nobody knows your experience better than you than you. Nobody can argue against your experience because it's your experience, how you came to Jesus. It's irrefutable. Now, they can deny that there's a God. They can deny there's Jesus. But you know what? That's fine. But this is my experience. This is my testimony. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. Here's my story. But we're called to be a witness. And remember, we are called a witness for a reason. I want you to think about that that word witness in a legal sense even. A witness. Can't convince people they need to be saved? If leading a person to Jesus is just a matter of convincing a person, then we're bypassing the Holy Spirit. Yet we do this all the time in American Christianity. We convince people without conviction. Sinners must, must, church, because if they don't feel conviction, it's all up here. And you can't get saved up here. Conviction has to be a matter of the heart. Unless a person is convicted of their sins and understands the gravity of their sins, they will never turn from their sins. You know, I've said this phrase before, but we're all hell-deserving sinners. Now, I want you to really think about that. And most of us say, I don't know about that. Yes, you are, every one of us. Hell-deserving sinners. It's hard to hear, isn't it? It's hard to stomach. It's hard to grasp. But yet it's the truth. This is why we are... Why Jesus came to save us because we are hell-deserving sinners. So what happens is conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God's grace. It's, it's the process of God bringing a sinner to repentance, and then we step in and we mess it all up and say, no, 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 don't worry about it. I just believe. Just believe. And what do we do? We are taking the truth of God's Word for selfish reasons because we think we can, we can help the Holy Spirit out because he can't convict people on his own. We have good intentions, but yet it's because we don't know the Word of God, and we just tell people to believe. I love Peter's words and the, the testimony, and then the response, what shall we do? When you hear those words, what must I do? Boy, you give it to him then. You, give, you repent of your sins. Call upon Jesus. Make him the Lord of your life. I mean, now the open door, you can go beyond testimony now, and you begin to present the gospel. But what is Peter's first response? Repent. And this is where I think some of us get uncomfortable to call people to repentance. But church, if God's already convicted them, don't be shy. Their heart is open. They're ready. Don't, don't just say believe, repent. Let me, let me show you a pattern in Scripture. Peter again says this, repent. First message of the church, right? First altar call of the church. Jesus has risen. He's ascended into heaven. And now the church is empowered. It's their first message. First message of the church. Repent. Let everyone of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
uh, excuse me, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Turn from your sins, right? What did John the Baptist preach as he's preparing the way for Jesus? Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. So people come out to the desert where John is. It's not convenient. They know this, this guy is out there, this preacher's out there, his prophet's out there, and he's preaching a message of repentance, and people are coming out there for that very reason. Why are they coming out there? They don't have to go out there. They don't have, John's not part of the temple worship. He's not a priest. He's not part of the Pharisees. He's just this guy out in the desert, a prophet, we think. But he has this message, and this message is resounding with people because what he's doing, he's calling people to repentance. So they make their way out to the desert. They go out to the Jordan River. Why? Because they have conviction in their heart. We would say this, why do you want to go to church out in the desert when the church is right there? We are creatures of habit and convenience, church. It shows you that something powerful was taking place for these people to journey out of their way out into the desert to be dunked in some water. Why? Because conviction. How did Jesus start his ministry? Matthew 4, 17, from that time, important words, by the way. From that time, Jesus began to preach. This is a theme. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, here's a story that we gloss over. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus calls her to repentance. We said, well, no, no, Jesus didn't condemn her. He offers her grace. He says, go and sin no more, which is repentance. Hey, I'm offering you grace. I'm offering you mercy. But you go back sleeping around again, there is no mercy and grace for that. Sin no more. It's a call to repent. Paul begins his ministry this way, or he uses the same message. Acts 20, 21, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. John preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Peter preached repentance. Paul preaches repentance. Why doesn't the church preach repentance? Without conviction and repentance, salvation is impossible. It's a work of God. We're cutting out the Holy Spirit out of the whole deal. And we just put it on man and we just make it a philosophy. It's all up here. John 6, 44 no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. The drawing is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, brings conviction into our lives. Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit. Uh, John 16, 8, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of their sin. God draws a sinner to repentance by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. If God isn't drawing a person to repentance, and all we do is this, and we tell them all you need to do to be saved is to believe and pray this prayer, we've so short-circuited salvation. We, we've told them they're on the narrow path, but they've never left the broad path. And that's why, church, you can have an altar call, 100 people come to the altar, and yet two weeks later, maybe five, if not more, less than that, or in church being disciples. Because we're not called just to be converted, we're called to be disciples. And you can't be discipled at home, I'm sorry about it. The church is integral in that process. I want you to think about this. We know someone, they're not a Christian, let's say. We love that person, we care for this person. We, we don't want them to go to hell. So what do we do? First and foremost, 
we should pray for them. I know this sounds simple, but you have to have this, this element here. Because a lot of times what we want to do is just jump to information, bypass the Holy Spirit. You've got to pray, and here, here's why. We should pray the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin. If you are dealing with a loved one, family member, whoever, and, and they need to be saved, pray that the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin. Because until they see the gravity of their sin, they need the necessity for a Savior, not up here, because again, living in a religious community like ours, it's not hard to convince people up here they need a Savior. Because listen, they, they say, oh, I need, I need Jesus, I need to be saved, but I can live like hell, right? No? See, they haven't got it here. They've got it here, but they haven't got it here. So the Holy Spirit has to do this work. So we should pray, God, and this might seem difficult or, or almost kind of like, like nasty for you to pray this, like whatever it takes to get them. Whatever, whatever hell they got to go through, whatever valley they have to go through, whatever mountain they need to do, I don't care. What, however you want to do it, whatever is necessary to bring repentance to that person, God, let it happen. I mean, Paul was, was pretty vocal I give this one over to Satan that he may be saved. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit, church, is so integral in this process. But we've reduced salvation down to a formula. All you have to do is check off this box, check off this box, believe this, believe that, say the prayer, you're in the club. Your hand stamp, you come, go as you please. But what we do is we bypass certain <laughs> very important truths, such as this in Jeremiah 79. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Just say the prayer. Nothing to do with your heart. heart God takes care of the heart later. Let's get it up here. No, get it up here first, or get it down here first. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit working in the lives of sinners. We, we can't bring conviction to to harden hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. That's why, that's why our testimony can be at the right time, can be so powerful. Every one of you have a story. Every one of you have a testimony. Every one of you have a, your story, how you came to Christ. And you can tell that story a thousand times at the wrong time, and nothing will happen. But you can tell that story once to the right person that is dealing with conviction, and you would think that all heaven came loose, and they think your story is in the Bible. But it is, really, in, the, in, in, in essence. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit was dealing with that person. You take your story, and you, you use your testimony when the Holy Spirit's not dealing with that person, you know exactly what happens. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm not interested. You know what you do? It doesn't mean you don't testify to them anymore. What you should do, go home and pray. Pray. God, get them. <laughs> not nasty mean, get them, though. Holy Spirit, get them. Give me an opportunity to share my testimony with this person. They desperately need you. Plead, beg, I mean, pound heaven for them. Can't bring conviction. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Think about asking a friend or a family member these questions. Imagine this, asking them these questions. Now, imagine asking these questions, because it happens all the time, without the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Do you want to go to hell, or do you want to go to heaven? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Just go out here and ask these questions right now without the work of the Spirit in their lives. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave for your sins? Do you believe that he's the only way to experience salvation? If so, pray this prayer. You'll be saved. Just because a per person can say yes to those questions and pray that prayer doesn't mean they are saved. 
There's an experience, church. There is an experience necessary for salvation. We, I don't know why we take this out of, like, just like repentance is removed out of salvation. Why is this being removed? When Jesus was so clear and adamant about this, you must be born again. Not born of the mind, not born of the emotions, but born of the Spirit. An inward work, which, which takes the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit isn't involved, how is that person going to be born again? Only the Holy Spirit can take that old stony heart with all of its nasty desires and all of its sin and transform it into a new heart and give that person new desires so they can become a new person. So what is our response to a person who is a sinner? We pray for that person. We intercede for that person. By the way, if you're born again, you are priests and kings. Do you know in the Old Testament especially what the primary function of a priest is? To intercede. The high priest intercedes. Go back to, to what Abraham did for Lot. He intercedes. Intercession is such a powerful thing. You intercede for those sinners. You pray for them. You ask the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in their lives. God placed you in their position for a witness, and you should pray for them because God's going to give you the opportunity to share that with them. He's going to prepare the way. He's going to prepare their hearts. He's going to bring conviction, but you've got to pray. Secondly, we must live a Christian life as a witness. You're the only Jesus they're going to see. When you live a spirit-empowered life, it is a testimony. There's so many times, and I've heard this happen before, there are so many stories of people just being in, in, at work or being uh, you know, in public transportation. You bother me, not in a bad way, but in a good way, but in a bad way. I feel, I feel dirty around you. If you live a godly life among sinners, church, light and darkness... What do you have there? You have a living testimony right before them. That itself will bring conviction. The Holy Spirit will use that. There's so many times the Holy Spirit has given us opportunities we just are, are blind to. To many people, try to explain salvation before there is conviction. All we do is this. We, we just confuse them, or we do this. We harden their religious beliefs. Because in this community, everybody thinks they're saved. Because they've believed. And without the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, when you testify or share anything, with, all you're doing is hardening their beliefs. Because they're, they're all going to do this. They're, like you and I, they're going to double down. Mm -mm, not, you're not going to tell me. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. And this is why we need to be patient. And this is why we need to pray. Until we hear this, what must I do to be saved? Don't circumvent the Holy Spirit by taking the Holy Spirit out of the equation. Think about Paul and Silas. They're locked in a prison. They're singing hymns to God. But yet, it wasn't the singing, it was when God showed up. When the presence of God showed up and manifest, and there's an earthquake. Paul and Silas are set free, then the Philippian jailer comes, or he says then, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Not while they're singing. It was when there was a move of God, when the Holy, we just have to put it that way, a manifest presence of God, the Holy Spirit's moving, God's moving. And again, it just shows us something. Even in our best efforts, we're, we're useless in comparison to the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would submit to you that a majority of the people in our community who believe they are on the right path, but are on the wrong path, believe so because we have put them there. So I, I don't know about if I put them there. No, we have put them there. The church has put them there, and we're part of the church. And see, some of you already just don't even like to hear that. I don't know why that is. We live in an age where no one wants to take responsibility. We are responsible for these people. God has put us here not just to have church, but to reach this community. 
And I understand this. We can't control every other church, but we can take care of this church. We can take care of this message. How many people have went down the wrong path, the broad path of destruction, and we've been telling them the whole time, they're saved, you're saved. How many people in our community believe they're going to heaven because we've gospel-hardened them? So there was no conviction in their lives. There was really no tug of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but they got saved up here, and all we did was gospel-harden them. We told them that they were fine, and they become calloused religiously to the work of the Spirit. How about you? Did you come to Christ through false pretenses? See, did you experience conviction? Because if you didn't, you'd have no real need to repent. You may have repented up here, but you didn't repent here. And this is where we go wrong a lot of times. Did you surrender your life to Jesus? Not just up here, but here. Is he really Lord? And finally, I would ask you this, and this is very simple. Did you experience new birth? At the end of the day, I don't care how many times you've been dunked in water, I don't care how many times you walk the aisle and they sing just as I am. Unless you repent, unless you are born again, you are not saved. So, well, why do you say that? John 3, 3, Jesus said, answer to him, most assuredly I say to you. Hey, listen to what I'm saying, most assuredly. These are important words. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And down in verse 7, do not marvel that I say to you, must be born again. See, this is the modern-day preaching of the gospel. Believe, believe, believe. But we're going to take out, we're going to preach John 3, 16, but we're not going to preach in the same chapter, same message to the same person. Did you catch that? John 3, 3, John 3, 7, same conversation, same Nicodemus. Just believe, Nicodemus, you'll be saved. Born again, born again. Fooey. Do you see the danger in this? If you aren't born again, if you haven't experienced new birth, you've not received a new heart. You've, you've not been an, a new creation. You, you've not received new desires. And that's why the Christian life can be difficult. It becomes taxing. It becomes, oh my goodness, what did I sign up for? It's born because of the worship team. It's born because of this. You know what? It might be lifeless because you are lifeless. If we neglect so great a salvation, if we neglect the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, if we neglect the new birth experience, how are we going to be saved?